there are a lot of people, a lot of influencers who have spent considerable career mileage on building huge followings in Twitter. People have put a lot of time into investing in Twitter personally. Will people begin to give up? I doubt it. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, October 31st, and it's a particularly scary Halloween if you don't like Elon Musk, who completed his takeover of Twitter on Friday and over the weekend. But will the new era of Twitter be a hellscape, a welcome change, or will the platform ultimately look like something we can't even conceive of? John and I also discuss a topic my journalism school professors would cringe at. Are reporters just content creators living in an attention economy? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Monday and happy Halloween, everybody. I'm joined today by John Kelly to talk about what else? The media. And what is the media other than a bunch of tweets, really, at this point? <laughs> John, Elon Musk took over Twitter at the end of last week on Friday. At the time of this taping, who knows what's going to happen? Things move very quickly with Elon Musk. He changes his mind on a dime. If you hate Elon Musk, if you think he's going to turn Twitter into a hellscape, doomsday has arrived. If you like Elon Musk, D-Day has arrived. What's your take on, on on what's happened there so far since him taking over? And it's only been like a couple of days, obviously. Well, we try to disclose everything here, Peter, and and we should say that you know, Elon's asked both of us for for advice about what to do with Twitter. You know, <laughs> it's it's very clear um, because he immediately fired you know members of the management team that he does have a, an iterative vision for this, and he he was explicit about mentioning that this could be sort of the home for advertising in the future, which Twitter has under monetized advertising compared to certainly to Google and Facebook. Interestingly, like. He bought this company or he agreed to buy this company at what seemed like the high water mark of the boom time uh, with low interest rates. And he's taking over this company at what seems like the lowest point that tech has been at. Just to interrupt, and I think I think Bill Cohan agrees with me here. It is a remarkable feat for the Twitter shareholders. Twitter is not worth this much money at all. And somehow Elon Musk ended up paying this much for it. I'm not Bill and this is not investment advice, but the parabola is exactly upside down of, of, of where it is. So far, it's not a great investment, although I presume many people at Twitter have actually gotten wealthy because they had, um, you know, they had stock picked at 5420. So it's, it's an interesting pickle here where um, he may be about to lay off a lot of people who are going to be looking forward to severance packages, but they've already been enriched. I mentioned that only to point out that it is a peculiarity of this deal. Three things interest me a lot right now. One is there are a lot of people, a lot of influencers across various fields of expertise and industries have spent considerable career mileage on building huge followings on Twitter. I think I'm talking here to a man with 
uh, over 100,000 uh, Twitter followers. Uh, <laughs> Big time. <laughs> who meticulously follows them one by refollow, you know, <laughs> follows them back and and uh, engages with them. Like, will people begin to give up? Uh, Kara Swisher talked on Pivot about how she is a million and a half, and she's not sure if she's even going to be engaged anymore. Sure, Kara. Sure. Yeah. I love. I would love to see Kara turn her Twitter off. Sure, Kara. Right. No, that's true. There, there, there's an addictive quality <laughs> here. But I, but I do wonder, um, there's a sunk cost effect. People put a lot of time into investing in Twitter personally. Are they just going to give up now? I doubt it. I don't think this is just going to go away. Elon Musk got rid of the guy who deplatformed Trump. So I'm secondarily very interested in that. But I am like truly interested to see, and this is the big if, what are the like positioning and technological solutions that make Twitter a huge ad market because Elon Musk did gesture, you know, despite all the inane things he's done to, to get to this point, the guy is a success machine who's made tens of billions for his investors. Being advertising focused is actually the healthiest thing that this company could do. Brands have major safety requirements and they want to be in a, a, a civilized place, which, which Twitter is not. That's one reason why it's it's been outpaced in, in this sector by all, you know many of its peers. And so that actually was a sort of glimmer of hope to me. But as you know, like I'm here for the dumpster fire. I never use Twitter. I, I think it's got diminishing returns. And this to me seems like a, actually a, a perfect storybook end to it bought by some megalomaniac zillionaire who walks in with the sink and just, you know, says, let's light the place on fire. One of Twitter's engineers sent a company-wide email, I think, on Friday saying they were basically locking employees out of the code over the weekend. They would prevent basically any changes being made to the platform or any kind of product as the new leadership sorts out what's happening over the next few days, which, you know, some writers took as, I think rightly so, this would block any aggrieved employee on the way out from like wreaking havoc yeah. on the company or you know, just doing something wild on the way out. But I think you're right. Like the advertiser note he tweeted out yesterday was a counter argument to all of the smart commenters who think he will turn it into a dumpster fire. I mean, this is a media podcast. I mean, newspapers way back in the day in the early 20th century were polemics and they were propaganda and they were partisan. The only thing that made news organizations become quote unquote objective was the fact that they had to rely on advertising. And so they had to basically appeal to the largest swath of readers slash consumers. So advertisers could feel like they would have a safe place to sell toothpaste and cigarettes. And now Elon is aware of these concerns since Twitter's main revenue source is just advertising, which to me has always been like a dubious proposition. Like I don't, I'm thinking about ads on Instagram, ads on Snapchat, ads on TikTok. Like I engage with them. Like you can swipe up, you can buy things. I learn about stuff. They're pretty well targeted. Twitter, it's like a lot of journalists, at least in my feed and like in other people's feeds, it's just like just niche players. And then all of a sudden you'll see like a promoted tweet for like Oreos. And you're like, ah, what? Like I just never, I literally have been on Twitter <laughs> since 2007. And I have never clicked on an ad. That doesn't mean they don't work. That doesn't mean they can't monetize. I'm not like the, maybe the demographic that's being targeted. You know, obviously um, I get a shitload of ads for Semaphore. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that. They're promoted. So like maybe that's working me over. But Elon said, the reason I acquired Twitter is because it is important to the future of civilization to have a common digital town square. We can argue about whether this is a common digital town square since only a tiny fraction of Americans actually use it. 
we can also probably argue about whether it's important to the future of civilization. But Totally. I mean, like he says, a digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence. There is a currently a great danger that social media will splinter into far right wing and far left wing echo chambers that generate more hate and divide our society. You know, and he goes on to sort of sanctimoniously talk about Twitter. But he said, that said, Twitter obviously cannot become a free for all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. So basically, this was a measure to assuage advertisers that this isn't going to turn into Parler or Getter or 8chan. Because a lot of the media commentary has said that. It has basically tried to predict the future and say Elon is going to turn this into a vile platform for hate speech. And like, we just don't know if that's going to happen yet. And Elon Musk was sort of like raising a white flag to uh, advertisers. But the guy suffers from impulse control, so we'll see what changes. It's funny. If you looked at um, this objectively, you know, took the, the, the sort of Martian view of that personalities, and you said, okay, a company that was entering getter territory that had been ignored by its CEO and its board for a very long time was rescued by the richest man in the world in, in basically a rescue financing that valued the company at potentially three or four times what it was worth. You think, wow, this is incredible. What a what a gift from God. And yet we do look at this so differently. It, it's an incredible demonstration of the power of individual personalities and media narratives. I just think we have to be prepared. I don't think Twitter is going to look like it did, you know, five years ago. Mark Zuckerberg has, uh, just as a corollary, has placed this enormous bet that the market is sort of laughing at now that in 10 years, Facebook will be meta. You know, it'll just be a different company that does different stuff because we run a different world. And I think that that's what's going to happen here too. And uh, we also know that 15 years into this journey, like social media is running its arc. It's not going to be what we thought it was necessarily. TikTok is now by its private capitalization bigger than Facebook. So I think we know where Twitter is in that arc and, and Elon Musk probably has one last reinvention in him. And if it doesn't work to revitalize Twitter as it is with more advertising capacity, then uh, I think Twitter is going to be something else. Sheila Dang from Reuters got her hands on some internal Twitter documents last week saying that power users have been in decline since the pandemic. And I like retweeted that. And a guy I know from South Carolina, Wyeth Ruffin, who's like an election dork down there, retweeted me and said, America 2022, saving our best content for the group chat. First of all, that's the bargain that Snapchat made a long time ago, which is like, you really want to talk to your close friends and family the most. And the public broadcast version of social media has actually been in decline for a while now, except for TikTok being a good counterexample. But, you know, just sharing your random thoughts via text on the internet is something that is actually like kind of dated. If It's like, I've always said this talking to my friends was like, you know, I know you love Twitter, but like, would you have lurked in a blog comments section on like the Daily Coast or like any news site in the year 2005? It's the same shit, man. It's the same shit. You're arguing with like random people on the internet with avatars. We in the media used to sneer at comments sections on news websites yeah, and blogs oh, back then. Completely. And now we spend all day long doing it. And that is so funny to me. <laughs> the pendulum swung and swung back forever, whether it was a half an hour news program or a weekly magazine or a daily newspaper or a show. There were finished products that defined media that were created <laughs> that were professional media. And then they were overtaken by what we call social media, which is everyone else, non-professional media. And 
What killed many media companies was obsessing over how to socialize the professional media. And I think that actually the pendulum has just swung back to um, to professional media on new platforms. Well, that's going to get us to our another topic uh, after the break, which is the idea of reporters. Do you work for the name on the front of your jersey or the name on the back of your jersey when we come back? So, John, um, last Friday, Dylan and I talked about Politico. You know, they were able to lure Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns back from the New York Times uh, from whence they came like 10 years ago, basically. And I remember at the time, and Jonathan's a friend of mine, so I remember this stuff pretty well. Like, it was a big deal in Washington political media circles that he went to the New York Times because for one reason, like the Politico, he was one of their original stars, reporting stars. They wanted to keep him. And so there's this like, you know, drama where like Jim and Mike and John Harris were like trying to keep him. But like the lure, especially for someone like J-Mart, who's like a real student of politics and, and journalism history, like, you know, working for the gray lady is like the dream. And now it's like they left the New York Times to go back to work for Politico, which was, you know, a digital first news organization. And one thing Dylan said to me was, and he wrote about this for Puck, you know, the New York Times has had a hard time keeping its, both its stars happy, but also just like inhabiting this current universe we're in where, you know, whether you're a star or not, every single reporter out there has some kind of following and they want to be able to monetize it or at least dabble in new formats. Like I might be an expert in COVID, so I want to do a podcast or I want, I'm an expert in criminal justice and I want to like write a book about it or I want like a digital show and like I want more money or whatever. And so like in the New York Times can't either pay those kinds of salaries or accommodate the restlessness of the modern reporter. And I'm curious um, about your thoughts on that dynamic. Yeah, it's funny talking about Politico of that era. I, I was at the Times when, when J-Mart came there and it was it was a big deal. I think it was there was a little bit of trouble in the water Politico that um, the public was not widely aware of yet, but I think they were they were like having some like success pains, you know, people had all worked really hard for a number of years and, and um, done well and were arguing about pieces of the pie when no one yet knew how big the pie was was going to be. This creator economy dynamic, obviously, it's one of the, the driving forces behind our business at Puck. And it is a real thing in the world where we ha now have technologies that allow you to create brands quickly, whether they're individual brands or, or, or collectives. And you can get the best of the old world, so to speak, in services, support, and, and you know, whatever that means for a particular line of business, and the best of the new world in terms of distribution and freedom. Like, I have to assume that, and I talked to Jonathan a little bit, it was pretty clear early on that it was going to just be Politico or, or the Washington Post. He wanted to have a voice. I mean, Politico says that they're going to give him a chance to have a voice, but there are rigorous uh, house style guides at, at all of these places. Elite creators want to create and they trust their instincts. They know that the, the instincts that have made them so successful on social media or in paid speeches are going to be the things that propel their career in other aspects of their lives, whether it's their written work or something else. And, and that doesn't jive with what a lot of big institutions want. So if you look big picture, I actually think that like, the Burns J Mart thing, it's representative of something else. Like people leaving 
that they left one institution for a younger institution. But the real thing that's happening is that a, a middle of an industry is being recreated. There used to be a world that had something in the middle called magazines that were in between writing a book as a freelance writer and then on the other end of the spectrum being a, a reporter at Newsweek or the New York Times where you were, you know, you had a house style. And um, the magazine industry sort of lost its nerve. But in its prime, people like Michael Lewis and Brian Burrow cut their teeth at you know, regional papers, and then they went to places where they could be themselves. And that was the name of the game. Like, actually, I, I had lunch with Graydon this week. You know, I think about his career a lot. And he made stars out of people like Dominic Dunn and James Wolcott and Christopher Hitchin. They were stars in the pages of Vanity Fair as much as a movie star uh, got top billing above the project. I didn't know that about Hitchens. He came up through Vanity Fair? He was, I think, at the New Republic. And Graydon listens to the show. So if, if I make a mistake, he will let me know. Um, I got one bet wrong with him already last week. So I owe him $100. I'm a huge magazine dork. It's cool that Graydon Carter might hear my voice on this podcast. As the little boy reading Vanity Fair in the car on road trips and stuff with my parents, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he offered notes. I'll, I'll, I'll give them to you after the show. <laughs> Fuck, um, okay. But, um, <laughs> but um, he helped make Hitchens Hitchens. Hitchens already had a profile, but Graydon had tried to hire him at Spy and elsewhere and I think had the financing to be able to afford to do Vanity Fair. But they were stars. And that was the best of both worlds where you allowed people to be stars and be glamorous and be the Peter Hamby of their day while also giving them the power of a brand. So J. Martin and Burns didn't go to a place like Puck or, or Punchbowl or Axios, but um, but the next ones will. And that middle is getting uh, reconstituted. And that's a really exciting thing. You know, journalists tend to be eagle-eyed and, and skeptical, but um, but what they're seeing out there, and this was at the, this is the last line of Dylan's story, is there's choice. Politico is growing because its parent company, Axel Springer, is 40% owned by KKR, Colbert Kravitz Robertson, one of the five biggest private equity firms on God's green earth. And they have to put the money to work. And where are they going to put it? They're going to put it behind talent. And that is a good thing. Um, that's what we do here at Puck. Thank you for putting money behind talent, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Have a great week. If you decide just to quit Twitter fully, you will not be judged. This is a safe space. It's a safe space, I know. And um, I can't wait to check in with you uh, when we're both watching Amazon Thursday Night Football, our new uh, <laughs> shared uh, favorite obsession. Create a spinoff podcast. <laughs> All right, man. See ya. All right. Talk to you, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.